Amen. The message is entitled, The Importance of Doctrine. Many people minimize the importance of doctrine. I believe it's a grave mistake. There was an article entitled, um, How Ivy League Apostatized. The following was stated. Listen carefully. These are all major universities at one time Christian. Harvard permitted freedom in matters of theology and made no religious requirement of college officers. Yale drifted partly in concern for academic excellence amidst an environment of agnosticism and Unitarianism. Dartmouth and Columbia only had statements in their charters about the great principles of Christianity and morality in which true Christianity of each administrations are generally agreed, it had no strong statement of faith. Princeton yielded because of pressure from alumni. Princeton's charter insisted on a safe faculty but did not require this of its students. And it turned out more and more non-Christian alumni who could give or withhold donations had finally succumbed to their demands for a voice in the management and education um, policies. Every one of these universities were Christian at one time. Drifting away one step at a time. Too many churches and Christians have also given up their diligence to hold on the sound biblical doctrine, embracing much false teaching from within the church. And so what we want to do is look at five things regarding doctrine this morning. Let me give them to you. If you don't get them all down, we'll go one by one. You will get them. First, we want to look at the explanation of doctrine. Second, the need of doctrine. Third, the authority of the scriptures for doctrine. And fourth, the believer's duty regarding doctrine. And fifth, the way to determine what is doctrine. The explanation of doctrine is first and very important as the foundation. Many people believe they know what doctrine is, but they don't. The meaning of the word for doctrine, there are two words that are used in the Greek New Testament for doctrine. Uh, if you have an old King James, one exception is in Hebrews 6.1, where it says doctrine, but that's not the word right there. So that's the only exception if you read the old King James. There are two various forms of these two words throughout the New Testament. One word that is translated doctrine is used 21 times for doctrine. It's the word didaskolia. And it means instruction or teaching, very simply. Two times it's found in the Gospels, Matthew 59 and Mark 7, 7. Two times in Romans, Romans 12, 7 and 15, 4. Once in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 14. Once in Colossians, Colossians 2, 22. Eight times in the first epistle to Timothy and three times in the second epistle of Timothy, and four times in Titus. Did you notice that out of the 21 times that it appears, 15 appear in the pastoral epistles, which deal with church order and responsibility for the pastor. First, second Timothy, Titus. If you ignore doctrine, if you put 
a, a light understanding about doctrine, then you're a candidate for deception. And you're really anti-biblical. The most prominent appearance is in First Timothy, written to stand against different unsound doctrines being taught. First Timothy 1, 3 and 10. The word unsound or sound doctrine is hygiene. We get our word from it. It means healthy. The second word for doctrine is used 31 times. Dedeki. It means the act of teaching or the content of what is taught. In fact, at the end of the first century, second century, the disciples had a writing called the Dedeki, and they described their how to determine a false prophet and teacher. <laughs> I've given to you some of those things from this word. Now, this word is used for the astonishment of the, of the people for the teaching of Jesus in Matthew seven twenty-eight and 22, um, 33. They were astonished at his teaching, his doctrine. It is used for the doctrine of the apostles, which uh, they continued in constantly and filled Jerusalem with in Acts 2.42 and 5.28. The church, the apostles' doctrine. It is used of the false doctrines taught by Balaam and the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2.14 and 15. So doctrine is very important for the believer. It's like flypaper. You know, the old flypaper. Some of you young kids don't know what it is. You kids roll, you roll it out. On one side it's sticky, the other one is not. Now to you, it may not matter what side is you're going to choose, but for the fly, it does. Okay? One is good doctrine, the other one is bad doctrine. Doctrine is always based on what is found in the scriptures and taught being God's revelation of truth about God, man, sin, or anything else. We would never know anything about any of these things as absolute truth unless God revealed it. So it's God's revelation. Doctrine must be distinguished from dogma, by the way, which is man's statement of truth as set forth in a creed, not necessarily biblical at all times. The word comes from the Greek word doken, which means to think, seem, or to seem good, but most of the time it isn't. A good example of dogma is in the Catholic Church is what they teach that Peter was the first pope. That's absolutely unbiblical. Or that Mary's an intercessor for saints. Unbiblical. Or that the pope speaks ex cathedral when he sits in his chair. Unbiblical. Those are dogmas. Religious statements that contradict Scripture. Therefore, doctrine... In God's instruction and teaching by his revelation to man about the truth regarding the things of God and man can be found systematically throughout the scriptures. That's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Why do we need doctrine, some people say? Why can't we just love one another? That's the cry today, right? Well, love apart from doctrine will degenerate into carnality, self-centeredness, and perversion for two reasons. First, because there is no knowledge of God in the things of God apart from the Word of God. They're mere opinions. They're non-truths. Second, because human passion being self-centered and self-serving will triumph without 
um, godly fear. Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. If you don't fear God, you're, you're God. The record of the early church is that they understood the importance of doctrine. Again, Acts 2.42 says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. First Peter 3.15 were to give an answer to every man for the reason of the hope that comes that is in us with meekness and fear. Doctrine from the scriptures. You see, if you don't have good content, it's not just teaching, but what are you teaching? There was a time in America when in high school and junior high school and into college you taught American history, civics, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. So everybody had good content, so they were patriots, they were Americans. Now there's indoctrination, moving away from American civics and history and the Constitution, so the content has literally transformed our nation. Content is very, very important. You know, in an examination at a Christian school, the teacher asked the following question. What is false doctrine? Up went up this little boy's hand. And here came the answer. Listen. Quote, it's when the doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. Now, Although the little boy had obviously confused doctrine with doctrine, he arrived at the correct definition. You eat bad spiritual food, and you're going to get sick spiritually. Now, you eat bad food, that's your problem. You'll die sooner and go home. But if you eat bad spiritual food, you'll miss heaven altogether. Are we clear on that? It's not just that you say you're a Christian. What you believe will be evidence if you're a Christian or not. What you believe, the content. You know, you take foot washing. That's not a biblical doctrine per se. Though you can certainly do it. Jesus did it as a model of, uh, of, of serving one another in humility in John 13. So you can do it, but it's not doctrine. The doctrine that all have to speak with tongues as evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a twisted and distorted doctrine by the majority of, 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 of churches, Assembly of God's Foursquare and everything else. When Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 12.30 that not everybody speaks in tongues. Now when it's very clear that it's the least of the gifts, not everybody has the same gift, how in the world can you teach in a denomination categorically, that that is for everybody and everybody must speak in tongues and even some teaching that if you don't speak in tongues, you may not even be saved. Do you believe that's important? You better believe it's important. It's false doctrine. The doctrine that a person has to be water baptized to be saved is not sound doctrine. Though we believe in water baptism and it should be done, But it's only a public confession, what's happened in your heart, Romans 6. But if you get saved and you're not water baptized and you die, will you be in heaven? Absolutely, because Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, In him you're complete, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the sum total of deity. Jesus says it is finished, you're complete and saved in him alone. So water is just a evidence of what's happened in your heart. 
We teach it, we practice it, but it's not doctrine regarding the atonement or salvation. Peter even says that water does not put away any sin in 1 Peter 3.21. Now, the practice of being slain in the Spirit also, you know, where people lay hands on them, they throw the Holy Spirit like Benny Hinn, and you're sitting around the floor wiggling like a worm. Where, where do you find that in Scripture? Nowhere. For doctrine, you must be able to put your finger on that and say, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Remember Pentecost? If you can't find it in the Scripture, it's not doctrine. The only two people I find slain in the spirit, if you want to call it that, is Ananias and Sapphira, and they never got up. Now, is God able to knock you down? Absolutely. He can do whatever he wants. But, if God's going to knock you down in the Holy Spirit, why does somebody have to catch you? Is God going to knock you down to crack your skull? Not the other confusion, right? God knocked Paul down to the ground. He didn't crack his skull. He got saved. By the way, Paul was a non-believer. <laughs> when they came to Jesus in the garden. Who you seek? Jesus, I am he. Boom. They went down. Non-believers. Not believers. Interesting. Now you know what doctrine is. It's important. Secondly, the need of doctrine First, in order that authority be established, God's, not yours or mine, but God's authority. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 59. And in vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines uh, as the commandments uh, uh, by the commandments of man. So the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching as doctrine their own opinions as the commandments of God. And many people do this. They just start making stuff up and they say it's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. You got to look at the context and we'll look at that a little bit. You got to look at who is speaking to, what goes before, what goes after that. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty nine. Matthew describes Jesus as uh, distinct from the religious uh, leader saying, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Because he taught with authority he was God. And he was talking about the things of God. The things of sin and everything. Well, they were talking about religious things. Things that contradicted the word of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 too that uh, man's bent is to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. He knows nothing the way he ought. It doesn't take much for you and I to be puffed up. Just a little more. Just a little bit more. You notice when a child, when he finds out something new, he tells everybody. Because they want to let people know what they know. They know so much. And if they just found out and, and, and some other kid on the list, I didn't know. Oh, you didn't know that? It's innate. It's, it's our pride. It's arrogance. But also in order that the word of God may have free course to refine me and yourself. And the word is living and powerful and sharper than any twitch of sore, piercing even the vision of the soul and the spirit. The joint and the marrow, and it is the center of the thought and the intent of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says, it's the only thing that can cut my heart. It's the only thing that can convict me of sin. It's the only thing that can draw me to God. You put the word of God and the spirit of God together, it's like gas and fire. Nothing else. Man's uh, soul refers to the area of his intellect, emotion, and will. Man's spirit refers to the real person who they are. As a non-believer, we're dead. 
in trespasses and sins. Then we're born again, our spirit becomes alive, but that sin nature remains in us. So the warfare in Galatians, the, the flesh less against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, you cannot do that which you will. So Paul gives you the armor in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 on down to 18. To fight that good warfare, it's a wonderful warfare with the new nature that Peter tells us about. And then the body is just simply your physical being. That's what communicates uh, in your person here. I can move my hands, I can smile, I can whatever. But this thing is going to go down and it's going to go back to ashes. Whether you bury it and it uh, turns into dust in 30, 40 years, or whether you cremate it in 40 minutes, it'll do the same thing. God's not going to have a problem putting it back together either way. If you go out swimming and Jaws eats you, don't worry about it. God will put it back together. Okay? doesn't make any difference. Now, Paul prayed for the Philippians and their whole soul, body, and spirit be preserved blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. So you and I are an inferior trinity. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are an inferior trinity, body, soul, and spirit. Yet you never introduce yourself as such. Yet when you die, your body will go to the grave and your spirit and soul will be released to go with God. To the Philippians, Paul says, Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 5. That mind of a servant. Doctrine. Who Jesus was, what he taught. To the Ephesians, he says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, Ephesians 4, 23. The new man, putting off the old man. To the Romans, he says, present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is your reasonable service. And be not fat in this world system, but be transformed, metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. The Word of God. The Spirit of God. Also, in order that we not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, the goal is the maturing of the saints, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. To not be deceived by false doctrine. That we may grow in Christ, that we may develop in Christ, we may mature in Christ. When you bring your child home from the hospital and you take all their clothes out, you want to count all the parts, make sure they're all there. And from that day you're watching them to mark them to make sure that their growth is consistent. That their development is proportionate, not one arm bigger than the other. And that their maturity moves along at every stage. All those three things must take place for a healthy development of a child. To be a teen and young adult. The same spiritually. You must grow in growth, development, and maturity on every level. You can only do that through the word of God. Wheat, not shaft. The Holy Spirit warns about the latter times in 1 Timothy 4.1. The proclamation is to be uh, the explicit words of the Holy Spirit to the church. The Spirit clearly speaks, he says. The warning concerns the nature of the latter times. Some will depart from the faith. Those aren't non-believers. Some will depart from the faith. The method is by giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. So the falling away comes from within. 1 Timothy 4.1 is the periodic falling away that happens throughout the age. 
It's not the falling away of Thessalonians, but periodic falling away. Second Peter chapter 2 says those false prophets and false teachers are within the church and they will have great followings from within the church. There are various examples of the dangers of teaching with no regards to doctrine. Um, Jesus said the following, Matthew twenty two twenty nine. You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. You remember the context of that? Uh, a woman married one man, and she he died, and then he married. She married his brother after the Levitical order, and the next, and the next, and the next, and they all died. About six or seven of them. And then the Pharisee says, "Whose wife will she be in the resurrection?" This is the answer. You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. When you don't know the scriptures, then you don't know the power of God and you don't know how he's going to do things and why he does things. You must know the word of God. Otherwise, you come up with a nifty little answer by your own. That involves your own upbringing, your religion, your education, the culture, whatever it may be. Pop psychology. Peter says, as natural brute beasts speaking evil of things they do not understand. Second Peter 2.12. So there are, there are pastors that expound the scriptures this morning. Not the scriptures really, but they're expounding, twisting the scriptures. They're speaking about things they have no idea about. The majority of seminaries are, and college universities are apostate. And they're preparing men to take over the pulpits of America and have been. And that's why the church is in the shape it's in. They're teaching everything and anything but the scriptures. That's why America is so, so bad off. Our problem is not economics. Our problem is spiritual. In an article entitled Martin Luther's Fears, he warns, listen carefully, I'm quoting him. I am much afraid that the universities will prove to be the greatest gates to hell unless they diligently labor to explain the Holy Scriptures and to engrave them upon the hearts of the youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution where where, uh, men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. You know how long ago Luther lived? <laughs> the principle never changes, right? Common core from the pit of hell. The dummy down your child in math. They may come up with the wrong answer, but as long as they can think through the process, they get credit. Try that balancing your checkbook. It's no accident, ladies and gentlemen. It's to dummy down America further. Indoctrination. Paul says to the Galatians that the Judeans were perverting the gospel. Wow. The value of scripture is based on the fact that God's authority is over my life. I am his child. James 1.12 speaks to us about being his children and not just being um, hearers but doers, not being deceived, tossed to and fro with the waves. The greatest danger today is the amount of deceptive doctrine being taught within the church, not from outside the church, as I said, even as Jude wrote of the men who crept in unnoticed stealth, Jude verse 4. 
unawares. They're all over the church. Now you see the need for doctrine. When you were raising your children, some of you have raised children, some of you are still raising your children. You warn your child and you tell them, I don't want you hanging around with Johnny down the street. Because you know Johnny is a naughty little boy. And you know that your son is a little sinner like you and if he has a bad example, he is liable to go that way also. So you're trying to protect your child. By giving them good teaching. You protect them as a child. So therefore, as he grows up, then he can make those decisions for himself. Now, next we want to look at the authority of the scriptures for doctrine. Because a lot of people say, well, you guys, you guys think you guys are lords. You try to control people. You think, no, 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 no. It's not our authority. The authority is the scriptures. God spoke in different manners and throughout the times, as you know, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 tells us, God who at different times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by his dear son. God spoke at various times. The word means portions, meaning books and time, both Old Testament and New Testament, verse 1 of Hebrews 1. The various ways means in many ways and methods. So he spoke in different portions in the, in the past, by different individuals, prophets, and different books, no one had all of the revelation. They had part of the revelation. It was progressive, and it culminated and fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So the various ways and methods, he spoke through dreams, visions, through signs and wonders, through theophanies, miracles. He spoke like that, both Old and New Testament. And God spoke to the fathers by the prophets of the Old Testament. Men who, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, says that, that the um, Spirit of God came upon them. Uh, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They didn't speak of their own impulse, as we'll see. And um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God came down and spoke to them, gave them direct revelation, gave them certain promises, very specific. And God has spoken in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2 says, by his Son now. He speaks through no one else. Through the word of God and his son. It says whom he has appointed heir of all things. Through whom also he made the world. He is the final word to man. No one else. So there are no other prophets. There is no other revelation that we're to depend on or to believe. Outside of God's word. That doesn't go well with people today. Many times people say, well, you know, there were a lot of other books in the the Bible, but, you know, Protestants took them out and all that. And people are stupid enough to keep repeating that line. And they'll give you all kinds of apocalyptical books, you know, know, books that are not never inspired of God. They were never accepted. And people just believe it. God tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The word inspiration means literally expired from God. It came out from him. There's no way we can know anything about God unless he revealed it. Now, this includes all the New Testament. The word of God is profitable for specific things, we're told here in Timothy. Doctrine, reproof for correction and instruction in righteousness. Doctrine, teaching, content for reproof to declare your wrong, correction means you give, you show the error, and then 
instruction, you give the right answer. The sound doctrine. And then in righteousness, so that you can live in a right standing with man. It's connected to the vertical. I must first be right with God, the godly. Then the righteous are between man on the parallel. But the vertical is the important. What equips me and enables me for that? The word of God. Nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. The purpose is with design and intent. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you're going to be any good to yourself, to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to this world, to the church, it's going to be because you are thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the last 42 years, I've seen people who have walked with God for years and haven't been grounded in the word of God in their life. Suffered tremendously in many different ways. Other lives I've seen come to the Lord and I've seen them grounded in the Lord. And they've in many very difficult things has come upon them. And they've only grown and become mature and greater assets for the Lord. So it's not the matter that you not go through difficulties or that you do go through difficulties. That's what breaks you. It's what is in you. Are you grounded? Do you depend on the word of God or your emotions and your feelings or the culture? Other people's opinions. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit when they wrote the scriptures. It says it's God's authority, not mine. Second Timothy 13, I mean, chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. God expired the word from, his, from him. He gave it to us, Revelation. In Second uh, Peter 1, 20 and 21, the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they were carried along by the Spirit of God. Now, the prophecies of the Scriptures are not of any private interpretation. It says there in verse 20, in the first part of 21. That's a bad translation, both Old King James and New King James. Because you've all heard people say, well, that's your interpretation. As if we all have our own liberty to interpret the way we want it subjectively. No. The word there means origin or impulse. The men of old did not speak of their own origin or impulse. It wasn't from within themselves or of themselves. But it was through them by the Spirit of God. Who gave that. So what you have in your possession is God's inspired and errant infallible word of God. That you can trust it. And yet you can read John, you can read Peter, you can read Paul, you can see the different vocabulary, different way they address things, but it is God speaking through them. They were anointed at the time. They didn't say, well, you know, I think I'll write a book today. Or I think I'll prophesy. No. They were people like you and I. They blew it. They made mistakes. They offended people. But when the Spirit of God came upon them for the purpose of writing... It was for you and I that we might have God's inerrant, infallible word. Now, that doctrine has been given up by all the major denominations. By the colleges, universities, and seminaries. The scripture is often abused and misused in application and interpretation taken to the teach that um, one cannot give... Um, that one can give a subjective uh, interpretation. And again, that's wrong. We have to say this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Or by the prophet Hosea. Or the scriptures. That's the standard. And so we have to be careful 
lest you allow people to use that and then they have a, a, a subjective right to say that it means whatever it means. It's wrong. The holy men of God spoke as they were moved, carried literally along. Verse 21 of Second Peter 1 says, carried along to make sure that the scriptures that they were given were reliable, the revelation of God. This is what's called plenary verbal inspiration, big phrase. The message from Genesis Revelation, as you know, is about one person, Jesus Christ the Messiah. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and earth, he said in Matthew 28, 18. All authority, no one else. Not the Krishna, not the Allah, not the Buddha, not to the Pope, but to Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, it says in Revelation 19.10. From Genesis to Revelation, one red thread. Now you try to figure it out. From Genesis to uh, um, Genesis 1 to Genesis, uh, the end of 11, beginning of 12, is 2,000 years. 12 chapters, 2,000 years. From chapter 12 all the way to Jesus Christ, is two more thousand years. <laughs> you have about 100 years of the church there. Give it, well, John wrote last about 95. So, here you have God's authority. It speaks of one person, all these different men and that, were, that were inspired by God, different books, over 4,000 years, and they all speak about one thing and never contradict each other. They were really lucky, weren't they? Or it's the word of God. Which is it? The New Testament is one of the, on the same level as the Old Testament. Sometimes people say the Old Testament is, you know, the God of wrath and the New Testament. No, no, no. You want to study the doctrine of grace? Start with, with Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Same God. He's holy, just and good. He hates sin. He has to deal with sin. And it's always with blood. The token of blood of the animal was prophetic of the blood of Jesus Christ. Precious blood. Always the same atonement. Paul combines the Old Testament words of Jesus in the New Testament and calls them scripture. He combines Deuteronomy 25.10 or 25.4 and Luke chapter 10, the words of Jesus in 1 Timothy 5.18. They shall not muzzle the ox that treads the corn. And he says scripture. He takes the words of Moses, the words of Jesus, and his own words, and he calls them scripture. <laughs> Jesus himself told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would teach them and show them things to come and that they wouldn't have to worry when they were accused that he would tell them what to say in John 14, 15, and 16 that night before he was betrayed and crucified. You know, history has shown that once a school or church compromises its position and sells short the fundamental doctrines of the Word of God, there is no chance of them retrieving or coming back to it. Now, we might have had one exception happen in our generation, the Walworth Church of uh, Armstrong. Heretical. Some of the people come here, they used to go there. And then they recanted and they acknowledged their error. Now, I don't know exactly what's happened to them. They've sold a camp as part of it, but um, if that's, the, if that's the only exception that I know. The majority of times, once they... They go heretical. That's it. You don't come back. Now, 
Jesus said this, listen to Matthew 5.18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Matthew 5.18. In other words, heaven and earth can vanish, but this word won't. Everything must be fulfilled. Do you realize that one-fifth of the Bible is prophecy? And many of those prophecies have been fulfilled. In fact, Jesus fulfilled over 300 in his first coming. One-fifth, 20% of the Bible is prophecy. You want to name me one book that has prophecy apart from the Bible? You want to try the Quran? It's risky when you step out on prophecy. Only the Bible has it. The men of God today are filled with the Holy Spirit of God to learn, preach, and teach the Christian life, but they are not carried along by the, like the prophets of old to speak in Aaron and infallible. I do not speak in Aaron and infallible. I teach you the word of God as I've studied and I pray and the Lord is anointed and gifted, but I'm not speaking infallibly or in Aaron. If you read, hear some of the teachings, I make mistakes. I call Peter, Paul, and Paul, Peter, or something like that. It's a very obvious mistake. They didn't do that. Now, do you see the authority of the scriptures for doctrine? It's got to be the scriptures. Not you, not I, but the word of God. So when people say, well, you guys at Calvary or you guys with doctrine, let's just, okay. Fourthly, the believer's duty regarding doctrine. First, that you and I hold fast to patterns of sound doctrine, which you have heard from me, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 13. Hold fast. People are so quick to let go of sound doctrine. Compromise it. You just let it go. You know people who began well. They're not doing well now. You know people who used to serve. They're not now. They're in the world. You know people that were saved from drugs and from drinking. And now they're back in drugs and drinking. Yes, some of them were not born again. But a lot of them were born again. The warning is always to the believer. Not to drift. Not the non-believer. They're They're lost. All the book of Hebrews is a sharp rebuke to believers of the danger of drifting and ending up away from God. The word, by the way, sound there means health giving. We get our word hygiene from it. But also that you and I take heed to ourselves and unto the doctrine and continue in them. 1 Timothy 4.16 The benefit being twofold, you will save yourself And them that hear you. You're the model of Christ. You're the only gospel that some people are ever, ever going to hear. Also that you and I pass on what we've learned to others. Discipleship. Who shall be able to teach others in 2 Timothy 2.2. It doesn't stop in me. First, due to the privilege that I've received. Second, due to the responsibility to give out. To those that much is given, much more is required. You as a parent, you give everything to your children for those 18, 21 years, discipling them to prepare them for life. 
you give out what you've received and in the wisdom that you've grown in. The same in the Lord. But also that you and I preach the word, be ready in season and out of season in Second Timothy 4, 2 through 4. To convince, rebuke, and exhort. Now, if we cannot learn objective truth as the emergent church says, that's why they don't teach, they don't have sermons, they don't call it church, they call it campuses, talks. Because they believe we can't learn any objective truth. If I cannot learn any objective truth from the Bible, the Word of God, then how can I convince somebody? How can I rebuke somebody? How can I exhort? And I'm commanded to do that. It's absolutely moronic. Imbecilic. It's as bad as the line. Well, that's why we have to pass it so we can find out what's in it. Or you can keep your doctor. You can keep your plan. Deception from outside and deception from within the church. It's on both ends, ladies and gentlemen. Are you thinking biblically? How? With all long-suffering and doctrine or teaching, verse 2 says of Second Timothy 4. Wow. Not by your own brilliance. Doctrine. Why? For the time will come when... They will not endure sound doctrine, health-giving, but according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Turned away from the truth. Those are believers. Non-believers don't embrace the truth. They're dead. Believers. But also that you and I hold fast to faithful words as we have been taught. Titus 1.9 Why? That he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. In other words, there are going to be people who are going to oppose the gospel. They're going to oppose the truth in your life. And they're going to challenge you. Are you able to prayerfully and spirit-filled and being saturated with the Word of God to give them the reason why you live the way you do and what you believe and why you believe. And leave them in the hands of the Holy Spirit to convict them. I can't persuade anybody out of hell into heaven. They have to be convicted by the Spirit of God just as you were. But it's the Word of God through the power of the Spirit of God that does that. The believer is to embrace and not let go of the trustworthiness and reliability of God's word that he or she has been taught. But also that you and I contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3 says. The conscienceless of society is the need to contend. There are things being said about God, the Bible, and Christians in America and the greater institutions that have never, ever been said. Are you able to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints? The confidence is that the faith was given once and for all. There is no need for any new revelation Give that to the emergent church of Rob Bell and 
Brian McLaren and all of them. I wouldn't want to be those guys for all the money in the world, the judgment that they have coming. I pray they repent before they die. Jesus said it would be better that you tie a stone around your neck and cast into the sea than you stumble one of these little ones. Their churches are packed out with youth being deceived just like Obama deceived the youth. Same parallel. Now we're sown to the wind. Now we are reaping the whirlwind. The greater is the spiritual deception, ladies and gentlemen. Yale, from its beginning in 1701, was more conservative. In 1825, a Yale gospel group traveled around the country in evangelistic ministry. Timothy Dwight, president from 1795 to 1817, advised the class of 1814 the following, quote, Christ is the only, the true, the living way of access to God. Give up yourselves, therefore, to him with a cordial confidence and the great work of life is done for the president of any great university to say such a statement today would be educational suicide. You wouldn't find it. You, you've seen Waters World or he goes to Yale and Princeton and all that and asks questions. They just went this about two weeks ago. I, I have an amendment here to, uh, to, um, yeah, to throw out the Second Amendment. Would you sign it? Oh, sure. Wow. Wow. We believe in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for doing ministry. Acts 1-8. The Spirit should come upon you. We believe the model of the church is a living organism, the bride of Christ, not an organization. Ephesians 5.23, the bride of Christ. He asked to the church daily such should be saved. Acts 4, uh, 2.47. It's an organism. He puts it together. We believe we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We believe in the centrality of Jesus, his virgin birth, his deity, his atonement for the sins of the world, the first, second coming, and many other things regarding Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus will return for his church before the seven-year tribulation, premillennium. Jesus, the first to mention in John 14, 1 through 3, stop being afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go, I will come back to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You must make a distinction between receiving us to himself and coming back with him. First Thessalonians, he comes back for us. Second Thessalonians, we come back with him to set up the kingdom. Simple, clear. Jesus, the first one to mention the rapture. So much for it being a new doctrine. I doubt it. We believe in the literal thousand year reign on the earth by Jesus Christ and we will reign with him in Revelation chapter 20. You can read that. We believe that the agape love of God makes us one. And when we have difference in doctrine that do not pertain to atonement or the deity and the humanity of Jesus, the first second coming, then we can love one another. Now, if you do not agree with any of these things, you're free to go to another church. 
Because you want to be in a church that you agree wholeheartedly with. I've told people, I, I, can, I can understand if you can't handle me. But just make sure you go to another church that teaches the word of God. Don't go where you're going to get taught heresy. Don't go where you're going to feel good. The word of God. Now do you see the believer's duty, the doctrine? Absolutely. Lastly, the way to determine what is doctrine. First, doctrine won't be a new revelation discovered by you. <laughs> Real simple. Too often it's based upon partial truths. Too often is the result of text out of context. Too often it brings glory and attention to the preacher and the person themselves. And too often these weird doctrines are introduced through new movements, through emotions, through subjectivism, through culture, whatever it may be. But secondly, doctrine isn't taking a collection of scriptures together to teach what you believe about the Bible or what you believe the Bible teaches. So you don't stack the scriptures it is a form of dishonesty. It's a form of deception. It's a form of intellectual cleverness. You've got to take the whole counsel of God. There's an axiom in geometry, you know, that the, the, no, no part is greater than the whole, and the whole is equal to some of its parts. It's the same with the scripture. They all were fragmentary and progressive. Each had a little piece, and it culminized in Jesus Christ. So you've got to judge those parts in view of the whole. And no one part is greater than the whole. Genesis to Revelation, simple. Thirdly, doctrine will be determined by asking yourself certain questions. Real simple now. Is it part of the teaching of Jesus? Did Jesus teach it? Second, is it found in the book of Acts? Third, is it taught in the epistles? Simple. Jesus teach it? Is it found in the book of Acts? Is it taught in the epistles? Fourth, Doctrine should be based on the hermeneutics of biblical interpretation. Big old word. Hermeneutics. Science of interpretation. Let me give you some guidelines. Relate the text to its context. which pre What precedes and what follows. Context. Also relate the text to the people that it was written to. It has a historical background. They were written to a specific people at a specific date regarding specific situations that were going on. Also relate the text to an accurate exegesis of the word, the original language, whether it be Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. There's plenty of scholars that are reputable. You don't have to know the language yourself. Relate the text to the subject of the particular book. Each book has a subject, a theme that it runs through. So you understand the parts in view of the whole. Relate the harmony an agreement of the particular verse throughout the scriptures and affirmations of the doctrine. So in other words, if this verse here is actually teaching what you believe it's teaching, you should be able to have that confirmed through the Bible. Simple. And relate the text to the honest integrity and allow it to speak for itself without inserting preconceived ideas and theological views. So it's exegesis. You pull out of that text what's there, not eisegesis. You don't read into it. It's like a crime scene. You court it off. All the evidence is within that area that you've court off. Not three blocks away. You're going to study a book. You're going to find everything about that prophet in that book. Unless there's a cross-reference somewhere else. It's all there. You've got to search. 
For the most simple and obvious understanding is usually the correct one. So, if the text makes sense, do not make it say nonsense, Wesley used to say. Simple. Text out of context is nothing but a pretext. You know, the seriousness of Aaron doctrine can be uh, compared to a missile that's, that's fired off, just one minute degree off. The longer it travels, the more it veers off. If it has to travel 100 miles, it'll never hit its target. That airplane takes off at the end of the runway at minute one degree is nothing. But if it's going for Hawaii, it'll never hit it. How much more for doctrine? You may be off a little bit. It's like a pie. You cut that pie, it all has a center. They all meet at the center. But as it goes out from the center out to in a, in a radius, they get further apart. Pie shape. The most dangerous is the spiritual deception. False doctrine. And the church is full of false doctrine. A little there is very serious business. Are you being caught up with the heresy of uh, prosperity doctrine or health and wealth? Um, that you're little gods. I'm amazed how long this thing has lasted. It keeps progressing. I don't know what they are now. Um, perhaps you're being deceived by the signs and wonder movement that was started by the late John Wimber. Um, that also, power evangelism, you know, you do miracles to get people saved. It's completely out of context. That's not what the Bible teaches. They even profess to teach people how to raise the dead. Wow, interesting. A lot of them are dead now. Maybe you um, are being taken in by the barking in the spirit, flying in the spirit, um, you know, just giving more ammunition for the non-believer to mock the church. Or being drunk in the spirit, dogpiling on one another, men and women, how convenient. Where's that church? I want to join it. Wow. Some are being deceived by the extremes of predestination and free will, exclusion of man's free will. And Calvinism is only about 400 years old with Calvin. It's Augustinian theology, and Augustine recanted it. But the first Calvinist was Adam. He said, it's the woman you gave me. He blamed God for the fall. He's the first Calvinist. Interesting. Are you embracing the prosperity or the purpose-driven church doctrine of Rick Warren? It's a humanistic gospel, self-help book, twisting the interpretation of Scripture in order to make you feel good and to, to, to have good self-esteem. Wow. The greatest danger in the church today is the emergent church attacking the authority of Scripture, the blood of Christ, and many, many other things that we've studied. It is a postmodern lie from the pit of hell professing another gospel which is condemned by Paul. Listen to him. I marvel that you are being turned away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, apostles, we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you than what you we have preached to you, let him be anathema, the strongest word of damnation in the Greek. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you, you, you have received, let him be anathema. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. How much clearer can we get? Now people go, oh, you guys are unloving. Paul? He says, let him go to hell. Jesus says, tie a stone around their neck. John the Baptist says, snakes, vipers. I think I'm in good company. You guys think I'm bad. You should read these guys. Now do you see how 
to determine what doctrine is? Very important, ladies and gentlemen. What a way to finish off the year and to begin it. Understanding the importance of doctrine. So, we come to understand that if we don't use the scriptures to learn about God, man, sin, angels, or whatever it might be, the redemption of Jesus, we're ignorant to our conjectures and we result in inferior uh, understanding and knowledge being corrupted by our own wisdom rather than going to the revelation of God. And we did this by the explanation of doctrine, by the need of, for doctrine, the authority of the scriptures for doctrine, the believer's duty regarding doctrine and the way to determine what is doctrine. Simple. But it takes time. You need to roll up your sleeves. You need to open the book. You need to spend time. And you need to ask God for wisdom. And you need to, you need to be the church, not just go to church. You need to be the church. Your children live with you. Every day. Until they leave the home. They don't just visit once in a while. If they did, they'd be more like their friends than you. If your children are more like their friends, then that means that you don't spend enough time with them. If you don't spend time with Jesus, with the church, you're going to be more like the world. Real simple. May God give us wisdom. For 2016, it's going to be quite a year. Guaranteed. Lord, thank you for your love, your grace, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. I pray for every person here, your hand be upon them, those over the internet, Lord, and even the live broadcast on radio. Father, we thank you. If you're out there, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, those of you over the radio, those of you over the internet, this is your prayer of repentance to accept Jesus Christ, and he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior.